This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from markfure.com, The Progressive, a Best of the Left activism update, Counterspin, The Rachel Maddow Show, Comedian Lee Camp, The David Pakman Show, Media Matters, The Young Turks, and Moyers and & Company. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, be prepared that this episode will actually encourage you to take action to make the world a better place. America's top economic minds are raving about it. Motivational speaker, Messiah, Carpenter, and now best-selling author, Jesus of Nazareth presents The Jesus Budget, a conservative miracle. Hi, I'm Jesus. If you're concerned about your future and the state of the economy, the Jesus Budget is for you. Handouts and free food may have worked in ancient times, but today they just lead to a culture of loaves and fishes dependency. The Jesus Budget teaches you that blessed are the poor, for their capital gains tax is low. For I was hungry, and you gave me vouchers. I was thirsty, and you gave me trickle-down. I was sick, and you saved me from socialism. And it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be taxed in the Cayman Islands. Just ask a few real Americans what they think of the Jesus Budget. Thanks to the Jesus Budget, we can pay down the deficit responsibly and not rely on social programs to care for my leprosy. The Jesus Budget taught me I've got to take responsibility for the fact I'm homeless. And he's not even the father. Finally, after reading the Jesus Budget, I could stop being a good Samaritan, cross to the other side of the street, and say f- The Jesus Budget. Finally, a good book that does good. Available online and at independent bookstores everywhere. Also available as an ebook or divine revelation. <laughs> Tom Barrett, the mayor of Milwaukee, just won a decisive victory in the Democratic primary in Wisconsin, setting up a colossal rematch against Scott Walker. The most recent polls show the race to be a toss-up. For Barrett to win, he'll need to almost double the Democratic votes that turned out on Tuesday. And while there are many Walker voters, especially in union households, who now have a bad case of voter remorse, Walker's base of support remains strong. His troops will turn out on Election Day. You can count on that. Plus, at the end of April, he'd raised and had on hand ten times the amount of money that Barrett had. Even on Election Night, Walker was saturating the airwaves with negative ads against Barrett. Walker is the darling of the vicious business class, a hero to bosses everywhere who want to put the boot on the throat of labor. If their money enables Walker to prevail, it would be a devastating blow to the million people who signed those recall petitions and to the hundreds of thousands 
thousands who protested in the streets. Antidepressants by the truckload would have to be delivered to the Badger State. But if Walker loses, progressive forces in Wisconsin and around the country will rejoice, and the power of grassroots activism will once again be reaffirmed. There's a lot riding on June 5th. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Activism. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage Welcome to the Best of the Left Activism Update. My name is Lauren. I'm the activism czar, moral compass, and token female at bestoftheleft.com. All right, Wisconsin's bid to recall Republican Governor Scott Walker took a giant step forward on May 8th as Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett won the Democratic primary with renewed hopes to unseat and replace Wisconsin's unpopular and disgraced governor with a progressive mandate. So as we know, Walker is now infamous for pushing the most aggressive union-busting bill ever. When you kill unions, you not only hurt workers, but you kill the number one source of campaign contributions to progressive candidates who work in those workers' interests. So here's the plan to fight for workers and against the GOP's craven political calculation. First, we must recall Governor Walker on June 5th. His actions and nefarious source of funding should not be allowed to continue. If you are in Wisconsin, we suggest you check out UnitedWisconsin.com. United Wisconsin is a grassroots, nonpartisan organization of citizens trying to restore the tradition of democracy in action. They provide many ways to become active, whether you sign up to volunteer on the ground, register to vote, donate, or even better educate yourself about the recall process. Plus, United Wisconsin is now promoting their new fundraising event for May 19th. Stand Up Wisconsin, a night of progressive comedy in Madison. This event will be headlined by Lee Camp, a regular contributor to Best of the Left. For more information about tickets, you can contact their website again at unitedwisconsin.com. Also, former Wisconsin Democratic and Progressive Senator Russ Feingold is the founder of Progressives United at progressivesunited.org. Progressives United aims at curtailing corporate influence on politics and is an excellent resource for activism locally and nationally. On the national front, we suggest checking out the Progressives Change Campaign Committee, or PCCC, at boldprogressives.org on how best to support progressive mandates in your state. The PCCC even has a direct URL, recalltherepublicans.com, in direct support of the Wisconsin recall. At this website, you'll be able to find their latest ad campaign. Please listen and pass it around. As a Republican my entire life, I'm appalled at what uh, Scott Walker and the Republicans did. I'm just a secretary, and this bill that Walker's proposing is going to cost me over $3,000 a year. I've tried not to think about it, just be out here on the square. It's not selfish, it's just survival. they got to recall this governor, because he don't care about Wisconsin. I'd be all in favor of recalling the governor. 
I wish we could recall him right now. I will help with recall myself too. I'm 85 years old, but I have never in my life seen anything like this. This is for my children, this is for my wife, this is for my friends, my neighbors, this is for our community. This is Republican class warfare, an attack on the middle class. This is a battle we need to win. So stand up with us to the union busting and corporatization of politics. It is crucial we know the signs, become prepared, and take appropriate action. Again, the websites mentioned are unitedwisconsin.com, progressivesunited.org, boldprogressives.org, coupled with recalltherepublicans.com. This has been the Best of the Left Activism Update. My name is Lauren. For more information about websites mentioned in this segment, please see the show notes. Corporate media love bipartisanship, so the news that a so-called bipartisan budget failed a vote in the House was something to be mourned. Under the headline, Budget Plans Defeat Shows Hurdles to Compromise, New York Times reporter Jonathan Weissman explained on April 2nd that the proposal, which was modeled on the media-beloved Bowles-Simpson plan, failed because, quote, Washington's conservative and liberal influence machines swung into action, close quote. By that, he seems to mean that think tanks were critical of this plan. Weissman adds that Bowles-Simpson, quote, is regarded by the Washington cognoscenti as the compromise both sides will have to eventually accept before the end of the year, close quote. Well, then the cognoscenti appears not to include an array of progressive economists and budget experts, who apparently know a lot less about these things than a former Republican senator, Alan Simpson, and a former Clinton Democrat, Erskine Bowles, who has a lot of experience in Wall Street banking and finance. What's not to love about Bowles-Simpson? Plenty. Social security cuts, tax cuts for the wealthy, and an arbitrary cap on government spending, for starters. If the New York Times thinks that all the smart people support those policies, they live in a funny world. And for the record, the quote that follows the Times reporter's assertion about the wisdom of the Simpson-Bowles approach, it's from Erskine Bowles. I hope you enjoy this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com.
Over the weekend, Mitt Romney gave what was, for him, a pretty candid speech. That was because it wasn't given to you or to me or to the press. It was given to donors at a fundraising event in Palm Beach. The reason we know some of the details of his remarks is that NBC's Garrett Haake and, uh, and a reporter from the Wall Street Journal were outside the event and they overheard the Romneys talking to said donors. Now, donors can be lied to just like voters can be, but there's also a certain kind of informal intimacy that comes from these events where people are cutting the big checks. So some of the things Romney said at this fundraiser, he said he'd consolidate the Department of Education with another agency or make it smaller, but he wouldn't get rid of it entirely. And Romney talked about how she loved, absolutely loved being criticized as a mother by Hillary Rosen. She called it, quote, an early birthday president. But one thing that caught my ear was Mitt Romney's remark about the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. Quote, Things like housing and urban development, which my dad was head of, that might not be around later. Federal agencies and cabinet positions come in roughly two varieties, the kinds everyone knows and all the other ones. If you pay any attention to politics, you have heard of the State Department, the Department of Defense, the Justice Department, and chances are you've also heard of the Treasury, and you know who's running them. Hillary Clinton, Leon Panetta, Eric Holder, and Timothy Geithner. Then there are the less well-known, less popular federal agencies, the Department of Interior, say, or Transportation, which don't quite get the headlines the other ones do. But down near the very bottom of the federal agencies list is the one Mitt Romney is toying with scrapping, housing and urban development. And Romney is not the only prominent Republican to treat HUD like a throwaway. Ronald Reagan cared so little about HUD, he couldn't even recognize the man he'd put in charge of running it. Quote, Early in his presidency at a White House reception, Reagan greeted the only black member of his cabinet, Housing and Urban Development, Urban Development Secretary Samuel Pierce, saying, How are you, Mr. Mayor? I'm glad to meet you. How are things in your city? Now, the reason Reagan couldn't recognize his own HUD secretary and the reason a Republican presidential candidate might want to get rid of HUD actually relates in an important way to why Mitt Romney was leveling, again, for Mitt Romney, with the people he was speaking to at his Palm Beach fundraiser. Because the people at the fundraiser are powerful people who support Romney needs, while the people who depend on HUD are not. The people who depend on HUD are largely urban dwellers, and urban dwellers are disproportionately non-white and disproportionately Democrats. And so HUD is an easy target for any Republican that comes to office. They can go after it, secure in the knowledge that most of the pain will be visited upon folks that don't have much power and don't vote for them anyway. This is part and parcel of the overall Republican vision, as embodied in Congressman Paul Ryan's budget, to take a hatchet to those programs that most benefit the poor and to eliminate nearly all of the federal government that is not defense or spending on senior citizens by the year 2050. But here's the thing I find particularly galling about toying with the notion of getting rid of HUD. Let's take a step back and remember where we are right now. The economy is still recovering from the worst recession we've had since the 1930s. The worst recession was precipitated by the worst financial crisis we've had since the 1930s, which was precipitated by the worst housing bubble, and that housing bubble was precipitated by both deregulation and housing policy. Housing and housing policy, making sure that we have enough that's affordable but don't drive a consumption bubble, is actually not just a tangential bit of policy that you can lop off or forget about. It has actually proven to be something that's extremely important to get right. 
And in fact, what we see in the Obama administration is a battle behind the scenes between the Treasury Department and HUD over housing policy, specifically how to get out of the housing crisis and deal with foreclosures. A battle that Treasury has been winning with terrible results for homeowners and the economy, but great results for the banks. In the 1960s, it basically took nothing less than rioting for the political establishment to pay attention to cities. HUD was established in 1965, and politicians did eventually pay attention. Everyone had to come up with a platform, a vision, even Republicans, of how they were going to address the urban question. Today, those voters can be safely ignored by the national political establishment, and particularly by the Republican Party. That's why Mitt Romney can say to his donors, when he thinks no one else is listening, that he may just get rid of the government agency that sees to the needs of people who live in cities. The agency that works to make sure that people people who are not typically in attendance at Palm Beach fundraisers, have some semblance of a fair shake when it comes to housing policy. But beyond the questions of fairness and urban policy, there's the wider issue that we were supposed to have learned in the wake of the financial crisis. Economic problems are like a contagious virus. They may start in one small, marginalized population, but they do not stay there. They spread. So even if you think it's okay to ignore the problems of the poor or the urban working class because they may not be your constituency, that decision will probably come back to haunt you. The constituencies that most rely on HUD are the same communities that served as a petri dish for the subprime lending virus, and we all saw how that ended up. A government that is unresponsive to an entire subsection of its society that believes it does not need to listen to or serve the marginalized is a government that will be doomed to repeated failure and crisis. This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. There's a new ExxonMobil commercial that's been playing a lot. It talks about how wonderful it will be to have the tar sands pipeline through the middle of the entire U.S. Because building it will create jobs. It creates jobs. It'll create jobs right here in America, says the smiling man from ExxonMobil who doesn't have any ulterior motives at all. Large corporations also talk about all the jobs it will create if Congress would just allow them to bring their offshore tax-dodging money back into the United States without it being taxed. And I agree, Americans need jobs. But is helping tax dodgers or building environmentally devastating oil pipelines the only way to create jobs? No, no, it's not. There are others. And I'm proposing we get started on the following projects to create jobs right now. Number one. We clear-cut Alaska's grizzly bears. They're ferocious, they're angry because we're wiping out their habitat. I say cut them all off at the ankles and that will create tons of jobs. You'll need trackers, bear experts, ninjas with samurai swords. Jobs, jobs, jobs. And don't worry, if we leave the ankles, they'll grow back. Number two, we build absolutely redundant oil pipelines across the entire United States. Millions of miles of leaky pipelines. Think about it. You gotta build them, then you gotta, gotta, gotta poke holes in them, then you gotta clean up the mess. That's a lot of jobs. So picture the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Before the oil spill, you had like 30 guys working on an oil platform. After the spill, thousands of jobs cleaning up that shit. 
Number three, we murder everybody named Luke or Lance. Luke's and Lance's are generally right? So you murder them, and then you gotta clean it up, and then you gotta hire a counselor to counsel Luke's douchey friends on their grief. Lots of jobs. Number four, blow up the Hoover Dam, rebuild it out of Cheerios so that it collapses every week or so, and you gotta start over. Number five, we redirect the wind sweeping across the Great Plains to wind farms in the north and the south of the country. Sure, you could build the wind farms where the wind already is, but that wouldn't create nearly as many jobs as redirecting the jet stream. I don't know how yet, maybe giant kites or something. Number six, let's tie all babies together. Not in one area, I mean across the U.S. Wherever there's a baby, it's got a tether connecting it to all other babies. Lots of benefits to this. Every time a baby moves, he has to pull on all the other babies, so that would slow him down. There'd be no more kidnapping or baby escapes. And it would create, create an insane number of jobs to connect all the babies and then monitor the baby connecting network. And finally, number seven we cause cancer in people. As much cancer as possible. And we'll try to make it the treatable kinds. Treating cancer takes tons of work and money and jobs. You say oil pipeline creates jobs, I say cancer pipelines. Let's bring cancer to every American. Everything on this list would create jobs. So I'm starting a partnership with ExxonMobil to make this list happen. Together, we can make America strong again. The deficit reduction proposal known as Bowles-Simpson, after Clinton White House Chief of Staff Erskine Bowles and former Republican Senator Alan Simpson, is bipartisan and about deficit reduction, two elements that virtually ensured corporate media would love to love it. In reality, the plan is remarkably regressive, cutting Social Security benefits for a median income retiree by 22%, while lowering effective tax rates for the wealthy below what they paid during the Clinton years. That led a number of economists, including James Galbraith and Robert Reich, to say that while it's harsh in its spending cuts, it's actually unresponsive to the real problems of the economy. This hasn't interfered with elite media's feelings about the proposal, though. So when the House rejected a budget plan based on Bowles-Simpson, it was completely unsurprising to see the New York Times headline, April 3rd, Budget Plan's Defeat Shows Hurdles to Compromise, with a lead bemoaning how Washington's conservative and liberal influence machines swung into action to assault the proposal and its attempt at conciliation. But not to worry, the Bowles-Simpson plan, the paper tells us, quote, is regarded by the Washington cognoscenti as the compromise both sides will have to eventually accept before the end of the year, close quote. Well, a quote follows from a source who says that when the two parties get serious about compromise, they'll see that there just aren't that many other viable options. 
So, a plan that no one seems to like very much and that progressive economists in particular have called out as genuinely harmful is the only sort of conciliation desirable or even possible. At least, that's what smart people think. And who was that cognoscenti source that says that when folks grow up, they'll see there's no choice besides Bowles Simpson? Well, it was Erskine Bowles. Stocks return more when Democrats are in the White House as opposed to Republicans. It's funny, I got an email from an audience member yesterday about this. And I ran these numbers by hand eight or ten years ago, Lewis, and it was abundantly clear. At the time, I think my numbers were that on average you had around a nine and something return per year in the Dow Jones Industrial Average when a Democrat was in the White House versus three-something percent when a Republican was in the White House, close to three times. I mean, it's a significant difference. Now, when we look back, I actually ran this way before um, John F. Kennedy. This BGOV barometer, which I, I took a look at yesterday, shows over the five decades since John F. Kennedy was inaugurated, $1,000 invested in a hypothetical fund that tracks the S&P 500 only when Democrats are in the White House would be worth close to $11,000, okay? It would have gained, it would have uh, grown by about 11 times. Okay. You with me so far? I follow. That's more than nine times the dollar return an investor would have realized from following a similar strategy during Republican administrations. If you put $1,000 in and follow the S&P 500 under Republican presidents, starting with Nixon, you, that would have only grown to about $2,000 on the day George W. Bush left office. I've said this many, many times. People don't seem to care. The, the common line is what? The common line is, well, what's happening is that the stock market is doing better as a result of the policies Republicans did before the Democrat took over in office, and I reject that completely. But that is, that is the excuse we hear. So is there any way you could be guilty of, uh, of playing with the numbers here? I... I I didn't run these numbers by hand. When I ran the numbers by hand, there, I just said, "Is if it's whatever president is in office, you came here's up with the gain similar. loss." It was similar. There was the, there were no extrapolations. It was just the the numbers. That's it. All right. Well, if if the facts uh, speak for themselves here, then then that's that. I, I agree with you. And if we look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and the, the, the BGOV study looked at the S and P 500. If instead you look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is what I did. $1,000 during Democrats would be worth $75.50. $1,000 growth during Republicans would be $27.16. So similar numbers, not as jarring, but still very, very similar. But because you cannot necessarily attach certain policies or um, government-related actions to these numbers, is it possible that this is just coincidence? 
Um, statistically speaking, if you do a statistical regression on it, my, my, if I, and this is from years ago that I ran this, this was beyond statistical insignificance. The numbers were statistically significant. Now, yeah, you're, it, it could be for other reasons that correlate with Democrats being in power, more spending on uh, publicly financed infrastructure projects or whatever it may be. But there is, there is a statistically relevant correlation here. Okay, what, what do you think is the best thing, of, the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to, to somebody who listens or watches? Um, let's see. You see, I would have to think about that. <laughs> is this, is this the, that hard of a question? Is it that is. What? It is a hard question. It's like, what is the meaning of life? You can't just, uh, you can't just throw something out there. All right, well, you know what? None of us know what the, what, what's good about this show. What None we know is have... we have a show. We know the show exists. Pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious... I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. For the 80% of you who listen to this program via the enhanced version of the show, which supports chapter markers, the following clip will include visual elements. Republicans like to present themselves as the party of small government. They say Democrats are the party of big government, and small government is better, and small government is Republican. Uh, and that idea, I'm sure, focus groups very well. But it is not true. Um, look at this. this. This charts the economy under the last three terms of Republican presidents. It's the first three years of the last three terms that we had under Republican presidents. They're all named Bush, right? But it's two different Bush presidencies. <laughs> two, two terms of George W. Bush and one term of Poppy Bush. Now, as you can see, both Bush presidencies had modest uh, but some job growth in the private sector. It's private sector, that bluish line. But when you look at government jobs, uh, the growth in government jobs was a little, in some cases, more pronounced than it was in the private sector. Now, check this out. These, these are the last three terms um, of Democratic presidents. So this is on the Democratic side. There's both Clinton terms and President Obama's first term. We're looking at the first three years of the last three Democratic terms. And you see uh, pretty big private sector job gains under Clinton. Uh, modest gains there under, under President Obama. But even though Republicans like to say they are the party of big government, Democrats do not appear to be the party of big government. Look at government jobs under the last three Democratic presidential terms. With President Obama, the current president, you see government jobs, jobs dropping like a stone falling through water, right? That's called austerity. And austerity is the thing that's keeping economic recovery slow and fragile. Private sector growth, non-government job growth under President Obama has actually been pretty remarkable. The New York Times noting today that the private sector grew faster in the first three years of the Obama administration than it did in both of George W. Bush's terms, as well as in the first three years of the George H.W. Bush administration. Only Bill Clinton had faster private sector job growth. Businesses have added more than four million jobs under President Obama's economy. The private sector is growing and growing and growing. The reason the recovery is still slow overall is frankly because of ever-shrinking numbers of government jobs. The most serious weight on the job market, according to the man who was John McCain's campaign economic advisor in 2008, uh, is not jobs in the private sector. Those are coming back gangbusters. It's government jobs, specifically state and local government jobs. That's the drag on hiring. Public sector jobs. And public sector jobs are, in fact, jobs. Jobs which Democrats would like to fund more of, but which Republicans say must be slashed. 
On Tuesday of this week, the Republican Party's presumptive presidential nominee took a break from criticizing President Obama for noting the anniversary of uh, for noting the anniversary of Osama bin Laden's death. He took a break from that criticism uh, so he himself could take some time to note the anniversary of Osama bin Laden's death. Uh, Mitt Romney on Tuesday joined Rudy Giuliani to campaign at a New York City fire station on the anniversary of killing bin Laden. And at that photo op event, Mr. Romney got to talking with some firefighters and they explained to him what it means in economic terms to work as a New York City firefighter these days. After he left New York, Mr. Romney felt compelled to share the story of these struggling, hardworking firefighters. He felt compelled to share their story with the high dollar donors attending a $2,500 a plate Romney fundraiser at the Pentagon City, Virginia Ritz Carlton. Mr. Romney told that high dollar audience, full of people who had paid $2,500 to hang out with him that night, he told them, quote, I spoke with a fireman yesterday and he has a one bedroom apartment and his wife is pregnant and he can't afford a second bedroom. I asked the firefighters I was meeting with, about 15 of them, how many had to take another job to make ends meet. And almost every one of them had. Shocking. Shocking, right? And relayed to these campaign donors in such a way that you might think that the moral of the story is that Mitt Romney wants these firefighters to be paid more. Mitt Romney does not want these firefighters to be paid more. Then there was the stimulus itself. $787 billion of borrowing. It primarily pr protected people in the governmental sector, which is probably the sector that should have been shrinking. We will stop the unfairness of government workers getting better pay and benefits than the very taxpayers they serve. Yeah, lousy government workers getting paid too much. Like those New York City firefighters and their unfairly large salaries that have them taking second jobs about which you're telling heartrending tales to your donors? Mitt Romney's core economic position is to rail against the government. Government jobs, government pay, government growth. Mr. Romney wrote an op-ed today in the form of an open letter to President Obama. He said, quote, undoing the damage you've done will be a daunting challenge, but I've learned a thing or two about how government policies can kill private investment and stifle job creation, and I have a plan to get government out of the way. He says he would return the country to the principles of limited government. He says, quote, and bluntly, our government is too big. Lousy government full of all those lousy overpaid government jobs, all these horrible people working for the government. They're the problem in America. That is the core economic message of a campaign that sees economics as its core message. Firefighters, great for a photo op. But after all, they are what's wrong with the country. Going to work in the U.S. can be deadly. In 2010, for instance, a whopping 4,690 people 
died from accidents on the job, according to a new report by the AFL. Almost 10% of those were workers born outside of the United States. And almost 4 million people were injured or became ill on the job in 2010. On top of that, about 50,000 people die every year from occupational diseases. There's no reason for such a heavy toll except corporate shortcuts and inadequate regulation. There are fewer than 2,200 federal and state occupational safety and health inspectors in the whole country of 8 million workplaces. So a work site's likely to be inspected only once every 100 years or so. That gives new meaning to the word oversight. What's more, companies where workers are actually killed on the job barely suffer any penalties at all for having a lethal workplace. The median settlement with federal and state regulators is less than $8,000 a fatality. That sure is putting a low price tag on the value of a human life. Fortunately, the Obama administration has greatly increased the number of criminal prosecutions against executives for violating the OSHA laws. But we need more prosecutions, more inspectors, higher fines, and tougher laws to ensure worker safety on the job. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Tori Brown. After spending months blaming President Obama for a rise in gasoline prices, the folks at Fox News and Fox Business are spinning the recent decline in gas prices as a bad thing? Drivers, stand up and cheer. Another big drop for gas prices, but is that just a sign of a weakening economy? Prices are falling, but before you start cheering, you should listen to our next segment with Lou Dobbs, and we're going to talk about why lower prices at the pump could actually be bad news. When prices go up, it's Obama's fault. When they go down, he has nothing to do with it. Is that something to tout as success? No, obviously not. Uh, And he has had nothing to do with bringing the gas price down the last few days. He's had everything to do with pushing the gas price up over the last three years. All that success he was just touting there about renewable energy and and that's all you've got? That's the record? For the 80% of you who listen to this program via the enhanced version of the show, which supports chapter markers, the following clip will include visual elements. Everybody's paying their taxes now, uh, and uh, I want to give you some devastating numbers on uh, how the rich are paying less and less taxes uh, throughout uh, the different years. Now, So, for example, let's start with 1992 to 2007. Uh, well, the 400 highest uh, incomes in the country, those t- 400... Uh, biggest taxpayers, well, they should be the biggest taxpayers, I'm not sure they are, their average income has gone up 392%. They're doing great. You see that? It's a big chunk of time and they're doing fantastic. But you see right there, their average tax rate uh, has gone down 37%. So while their income has quadrupled, their tax rates have gone down. Why? Because, of course, they have political power and that's how it works. Now, you think that's bad? Wait till you get a load of this. In the Bush tax cuts that just got renewed in 2010, now, remember... That was renewed under the Obama administration uh, for a compromise uh, that we hear about. Let me show you a chart of who that benefited overall. Okay, So now it's kind of hard to read. You see bottom 20%, uh, almost no benefits from those tax cuts. Uh, And then you see it fourth 20%, third 20%, etc. Almost nothing, almost nothing, almost nothing until you get to the top 1%. The very last bar you're looking at, the one that's through the roof, is just for the top 0.1%, 0.1%, and they got on average annual tax savings of $146,000. You 
You like apples? How do you like them apples? Well, the top 0.1% love those apples. They're like, give me more, give me more. Republicans, Democrats, what does it matter? I get paid either way. So oftentimes you hear uh, people like John Cornyn go on television, he's a Republican uh, senator from Texas, saying, oh, you know what, uh, the poor aren't paying enough. They, you know, the bottom 46% don't pay uh, you know, any uh, federal income tax. Now, of course, what he just snuck in there is federal income tax, but it makes it seem like they're getting a free ride and that they don't pay anything. That's not true, okay? Because you also have to pay state and local taxes, payroll taxes, uh, and sales tax as well. So when you uh, put that into the equation, here's what the result is. And it's a mixed bag. Look at this. So the bottom 20% actually does pay taxes, about 3.8%, but they're in the bottom 20%. They can't afford very much. Uh, and then you get into 9.9% for the, the fourth 20%, and then you see the numbers. Here's the interesting thing. The top 1% pay about the same as the second 20%. The top 20% pay more than the top 1%. So why does that go back down? Well, it goes back down because it's, first of all, uh, the sales tax, payroll tax, etc. is a much smaller percentage of their income. And then second of all, very, very important, capital gains and dividends. So if you have a ton of money and you invest in the stock market and you get capital gains or dividends in return, are taxed usually at about 15%. So that's much less than the average taxpayer. So, well, there you have it then. That's why they pay less. So when you look at the overall picture, everybody pays taxes. And the top 1% actually do not have a progressive tax structure. Remember, progressive tax structure is the more you make the higher percentage of your income you're supposed to pay. Except we've now stopped that because the rich have captured the system, so they're now paying less than even some people making less than them. In fact, making significantly less than them. But if you think the rich are paying less, wait till you get a load of corporations. It's one of my favorite charts of all time. Okay, so get ready. So this shows you corporate taxes, payroll taxes, and the individual income tax. Okay. And this is uh, from 1950 to 2009, so a big stretch of time. So the very top uh, is your individual income tax, and that's remained relatively stable throughout those years. Okay? The big red line going way, way, way down is corporate taxes. The big red, uh, green line going way, way, way up is payroll taxes. Now, payroll taxes are paid by, of course, you and I. Everybody that earns a wage, we pay the payroll tax. So you see what corporate America did to you? They shifted all the taxes onto you. So they pay less and you pay more. So corporations pay less as a percentage. The top 1% pays less as a percentage. Guess who pays more? You got it, you. Okay, in fact, there's a great uh, report done by Martin Sullivan at tax.com. He compared someone who would be making $1.2 million in New York at one of the fancy high-rises to the, a guy who would be basically a janitor at that same high-rise. So guy, the janitor makes $33,000. The guy, like I said, uh, is making $1.2 million who's living in that building. You know what happens? Under the New York uh, rates that apply and because of capital gains, dividends, etc., the janitor pays 24.9%, so about 25% in taxes. The millionaire pays 14.7%, so less than 15% in taxes. So who's getting screwed here and who's getting the better end? Unsurprisingly, the guys who give a ton of money to politicians are the ones that pay less taxes. And you know what? For them, it's a good investment. You give money to a politician and they give you 
hundreds of thousand dollars in tax breaks for some of these guys millions of dollars in tax breaks I'm going to tell For the 80% of you who listen to this program via the enhanced version of the show, which supports chapter markers, the following clip will include visual elements. Paul Krugman's new book uh, contains a scary idea right in the title. Mr. Krugman's new book is called End This Depression Now. And yes, that is depression, as in Great Depression, as in people can call what we're slogging through an economic downturn, a tough time, a slough of despond. You can call it a recession. You can even call it the Great Recession, which I probably did about 500 times last year. But Paul Krugman, in his new book, says this is not just a recession. This is a depression. We are used to thinking of depressions in terms of things collapsing, in terms of the economy falling off a cliff. Uh, This graph, for instance, shows what happened. Uh, to the economy in broad strokes terms in the Great Depression. That hollowed out plunge is no place to be. Uh, and neither is this hollowed out plunge. This is what happened to our economy in the downturn formerly known as the Great Recession. The falling off a cliff again. So that's a depression. It is defined in the most colloquial of terms by things falling down. But you can also find something that goes up around the time of great economic calamity. Right around the time that so much is falling down in a depression, this one thing and our economic stats starts going up. And that one thing is the distance that you have to stretch between the average poor American and the average rich one. Like this. This chart was included in a report by the US Congress in 2010. We've added a couple of red circles to make it easier to see on TV, but the point here uh, is the same. The distance between rich and poor in this country goes way up around the Wall Street crash of 1929 and the Great Depression. And again, the distance between rich and poor in this country goes up around the end of the Bush administration financial crisis. Our generations plunge off the cliff. So, correlated with depressions, huge growth in the gap between rich and poor. Income inequality. Why is this so? Why do you have spikes in income inequality around economic catastrophes? We're going to ask Paul Krugman that in just a moment. But first, one more idea to put on the table. My personal chart of the day, my epiphany chart of the day. It turns out that as income inequality has gone up, income inequality is the blue line here, as income inequality rises, huh, look at that. At the same time, Congress gets more polarized. That's the red line. Congress becomes more partisan, less likely to compromise, less willing and or able to get anything done. This chart belongs to the very smart people at VoteView.com, and I thank them. Uh, Because for me, this chart explains an awful lot about what's happening in our current politics. It explains why we can't get anything done to fix the economy. Income inequality creates its own political weather. Or as Paul Krugman says in his new book, the gravitational political pull of the rich becomes stronger when the rich are richer. Since 1980, the Republican Party has moved right in tandem with the rising incomes of the elite, and political compromise has become almost impossible. So maybe the reason Republicans in Congress will not fix the economy and therefore Congress can't fix the economy is because they think that fixing the economy would not help the richest people in the country, and that's whose interests they feel they must serve. Boing! 
<laughs> Joining us now for the interview is Mr. Epiphany himself, Paul Krugman, Nobel Prize winning economist and Princeton professor of economics and international affairs. He's, of course, a columnist for The New York Times, and his eagerly anticipated new book is called End This Depression Now. Dr. Krugman, thank you for being here. Hi there. Good to be on. Um, I'm glad to be able to ask you this question. Why is income inequality, a big gap between the rich and the poor, correlated with economic catastrophe? There's two things, I think, going on. One is that when the economy is bad, it's the people with the least power who can't protect themselves. So the most vulnerable get hurt. And that's why, that I think is why the gap between rich and poor widens when catastrophe hits. But the other thing is that a polarized political system, a system in which uh, the, you know, one party's been pulled way off to the right, is not able to cope with the difficulties of the economy. They, um, you, know, you sort of ask, why do, we, we know how to fix this. That's the theme of my book. That mm -hmm. We know how to fix this, but we've managed, a lot of us have managed, a lot of important people have managed to forget. Why have they managed to forget? Because admitting that the government can fix a depression is also admitting that the government can do good things. And if you admit that the government could do things, then you might think, well, you know, maybe then we have to tax rich people to pay for those good things. And so this kind of anti-government, hardline, markets are God, the rich have the answers, has, has left us a psychologically, intellectually incapacitated in the face of this depression that we're in. The thing that is palpable um, in the book, it, it frankly does not surprise me that there was an exclamation point at the end of the right. title of your book. As I watch, uh, watch, I read your writing every day, read your blog and read your columns, you can sense your increasing frustration that um, it's not that there are people in power who disagree with you on economic arguments, but that economic arguments are now bad arguments, that people who are right and who have been proven right still are not allowed to win the argument. It, it's been an amazing thing. If you believed in a basic Keynesian, the basic, the basic story that I've been telling, you would have been right about a whole lot of things. And if you believed, let's say, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and you'd actually invested on that basis, you would have lost an enormous amount of money, right? We've been told, oh, deficits will drive interest rates sky high, Printing money to try and fight the recession is going to lead to runaway inflation, none of which has happened. Uh, austerity, you know, cutting spending is good because it will increase confidence. Take a look at Spain, at Ireland, at Portugal. Um, we, we've had an overwhelming vindication of the ideas that say that this is the time for governments to spend, this is the time not to cut back, the urgent priority is jobs, deficits should wait, and yet that's an argument that nobody wants to hear in power because it's inconvenient for for inner circles, and I, I have to say, in the end, it's inconvenient for the for the one percent or or the point one percent. Do you think that there is, in terms of the the point of that graph that I showed in the introduction, do you think it is that people who have more literal capital um, accrue more political capital automatically? That you end up getting listened to more because you have more money to spend on politicians? Well, it's a, it's a mixture of things. I mean, it's, it, it yes, it's the power of money. It it works in both crude ways and subtle ways. There's the revolving door. Politicians thinking about what are they going to do after they leave office. That's a huge incentive. There's campaign contributions. And then there's just the, you know, I've, I've been in meetings where you have the guys from Wall Street. The guys from Wall Street are impressive. They're smart. They're funny. They're rich. They have great tailors. Um, and they tend to get treated seriously, even if they've just destroyed the world. They tend to have a weight that you know, beard, bearded college professors don't in these discussions. And so um, there's a pull of, of power, of wealth, which you need to actively lean against. And you try to convince you know, politicians with good hearts that you know, that guy may sound impressive and look impressive, but fundamentally he is not on your side. Do you see the arguments on the right... Um, 
changing in character. I was, I was struck having read your book to prep for talking to you today and then seeing the New York Times Magazine posting this profile of Mitt Romney's old boss at Bain Capital who has a new book coming out that argues, and I'm quoting, that having a small elite with vast wealth is good for the poor and middle class. Yes. That used to be what um, people like I would accuse people of believing. It's now the overt argument. Oh, and you're watching that the hereditary principle is starting to make a comeback. You know, we, I've seen that a little bit from Mitt Romney. We used to think you know, it was all about equal chance at the starting line. Now it's, well, well of course people, who's, you know, people should have the right to pass advantages on to their children. So, no, we're, we're you know, we're uh, this, this way to the 14th century, right? Yeah. We're really trying to get back to, to the old values of, of, uh, of hereditary wealth and power. No, of course. And it, it's... It, We've moved to a level of shamelessness in many of these things. The other thing to say is if you look at past economic debates, Milton Friedman would be on the left side of the political spectrum right now, right? He favored stronger aid to the poor. He favored really active policies to fight depressions. And, you know, he'd now be considered an inflationary socialist in current debate. In terms of um, what you think we can do to end this depression now, you argue for the primacy of housing, that housing was not only the cause of, uh, 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 one of the causes of where we ended up, but it is the thing that we have to tackle in well, order to get ourselves out. No, it's out. one of the things. I actually think the, the first thing that we ha- this is kind of important, three years ago, the question, how do we, where do we spend, how do we stimulate the economy, was actually somewhat hard. You have to find the right projects. Now, all you have to do is reverse the terrible things we've been doing these past three years. We've had massive layoffs of government employees at the state and local level because they're not receiving the aid they need from Washington. We've laid off you know, 300,000 school teachers, 600,000 government employees in total, when we should have, just to keep up with population growth, added 700,000. Right there, you've got 1.3 million people you can put to work with no need to do anything adventurous or innovative, just get back on track right there just by doing that we can probably get the unemployment rate below seven percent so the the, now that's the start you also have this overhang of bad debt from the housing crisis which we have not tackled properly Mm -hmm. um it would help if the fed was doing more but you know it's there's a bunch of things but the core of it is actually right now is is the time to to be spending on useful stuff and it's easy we could do this if we had the political will and the intellectual clarity 18 months from now we could be very solidly on the road to recovery As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. modern-day passes that we can't see evidence of the great divide. All you have to do is look at the news. The Wall Street Journal reports that big American companies have emerged from the deepest recession since World War II more profitable than ever, flush with cash, less burdened by debt, and with a greater share of the country's income. But 
Many of the 1.1 million jobs the big companies added since 2007 were outside the U.S. So, too, was much of the $1.2 trillion added to corporate treasuries. To add to this embarrassment of riches, corporate taxes today are at a 40-year low. Then look at this report in the New York Times. Last year, among the 100 best-paid CEOs, the median income was more than $14 million, compared with the average annual American salary of $45,230. Combined, this happy hundred executives pulled down more than $2 billion. And according to the Times, these CEOs might seem like pikers. Top hedge fund managers collectively earned $14.4 billion last year. That's Wall Street, the metaphorical bestiary of the financial universe. But there is nothing metaphorical about the earnings of hedge fund tigers, private equity lions, and the top dogs at those big banks that were bailed out by tax dollars after they helped chase our economy off a cliff. So what do these Wall Street nabobs have to complain about? Why are they whining about reform? And why are they funneling cash to super PACs aimed at bringing down Barack Obama, who many of them supported four years ago? Because, says Alec McGillis in The New Republic, the president wants to raise their taxes. That's right. While ordinary Americans are taxed at a top rate of 35% on their income, Congress allows hedge fund and private equity tycoons to pay only 15% on their compensation. The president wants them to pay more, still at a rate below what you might pay. And for that, he's being accused of, hold on to your combat helmets, class warfare. One Wall Street Midas, once an Obama fan, now his foe, told McGillis that by making the rich a primary target, Obama is on people who are successful. You fill in the blank. And can you believe this? Two years ago, when President Obama first tried to close that gaping loophole in our tax code, Stephen Schwartzman, who runs the world's largest private equity fund, compared the president's action to Hitler's invasion of Poland. That's the same Stephen Schwartzman, whose agents in 2006 launched a predatory raid on a travel company in Colorado. His fund bought it, laid off 841 employees, and recouped its entire investment in just seven months. Last year alone, Schwartzman took home over $213 million in pay and dividends. That's a third more than 2010. So Angela Blackwell was on the mark when she said this is a wealthy country. She also nailed it when she said one reason so many are not doing so well, despite that great wealth, is because the decision makers and the people who have the money and influence don't feel connected to the rest of us. So you can understand why I'm going to miss Bernard Rappaport, who died this month at age 94. B was my friend for half my life and a longtime supporter of my work on public television. But more important, he was a capitalist with a conscience. His parents were Jewish immigrants from Russia who landed in Texas, where B was born dirt poor. Poverty there either broke your heart or bit your ankles. And like a man with a bulldog at his heels, B scrambled up and out. He worked his way through the University of Texas, where he flunked German, he said, despite Hitler. At age 24, he met his future wife, Audrey, on a blind date. They were engaged the next day. Together, 
They invested $25,000 to start a life insurance company, which they later sold for half a billion dollars. B would have given it all away, except for an uncanny ability to make money faster than he could dispose of it. He and Audrey gave millions to help low-income children in Waco, the heart of Texas, where they lived modestly and where he died. Millions more to our beloved alma mater, the University of Texas. Supported progressive causes and politicians, civil rights and voting rights, arts and culture, and social justice across the country and in Israel. From an eye clinic serving predominantly Arab patients and a high school for children of Israeli families who wanted to coexist with Palestinians. And yes, they were generous to independent journalism. Molly Ivins was one of his darlings. And so was the tough little magazine, The Texas Observer, that fearless watchdog that takes on the oligarchs who run the state. Not once, not once, did he ever suggest to me a story to cover or criticize one we did. It was hands-off all the way. B was no Mother Teresa. Many a poker player might leave his table in their underwear. But he stayed close to his roots, urged the politicians he supported to raise his taxes, and felt morally obligated to argue against his own privilege. There weren't many Texas tycoons who believe society not only has the right, but the need to check and balance their appetites. He did. It was the only way democracy and capitalism could work. B read more books than anyone in business I've ever known, and he would send us one that especially moved him, usually about how democracy works or doesn't, are on the contradictions of wealth and power. He fretted as his energies began to fade, and toward the end he called almost every Saturday morning, and always beginning the conversation with the same question, Moyers, what can I do to make this world a better place? You did plenty, my friend. You did plenty. Congratulations on your numerous arbitrary numerical landmarks for your show and life alike. This is Michael from Glen Burnie, by the way. And I always knew there must be a reason I liked you so much as I turned 29 on Saturday, too, believe it or not. It's been a while since I called in, but after hearing the conclusion of your three-part commentary, I just had to let you know how happy I was with it. I think it's really important for every advocacy or any kind of political group to do their best not to cut corners on facts or make unmeasured assumptions or statements or be too quick to really you know, to demonize something we might not fully understand. But it's also one of the great frustrations to agree with people on certain goals or ideas or principles and so on. But then I end up disagreeing with their methods or, or certain statements that they make that you know, get a lot of attention. And when it's on matters I care about, it just it kind of irks me. And it tends to be whenever I confront these folks about this stuff, I just find out that they often feel like I'm either trying to distract from the real issues, if they don't know who I am, and they think that I'm, you know, a mole, you know, trying to work against their issues, or they just don't seem to think that misrepresenting facts, even if they're not the most important facts to the, to the matter, in order to or in the process of making their case is a problem. So I think that reflects badly on, on the position that they hold, and as a 
as a side effect of that, it reflects badly on the position I hold. And I won't go into my personal reasoning for why I hold that view, but suffice it to say, I was pretty happy uh, and I was pretty happily reassured by your reasoning in the commentaries. To, to and, and I think probably you and I are on the same page as far as why we think that way and, and have the same kind of principles of, about it. Uh, and I think it really relates a lot to your principles of uh, how not to be wrong. At any rate, I'd, I'd be remiss, though, if I didn't at least kind of vaguely comment on one thing related to this that has at times bothered me about the opinions expressed in the post on your show. Several of the shows featured seem to be repeatedly guilty of doing pretty much exactly what you've been talking against in this last three episodes. One of them, Jimmy Dore, the man, not really everyone on the show, as I agree with them to varying degrees, and then the young folks, I think, are probably the most repeat offenders on this. That they're really prone, or at least they seem to me to be very prone to rashly stating assumptions as they're, as if they are correct, but seeming to really care about doing a fact checking on those matters or owning up to it later on. I was curious if this was something that had ever been noticed by you before, and if so, what your thoughts were about them. Well, that's all for me today. I have to say thanks for your tireless efforts on our behalf and for the level of excellence that you hold your show to, both in content and form. Uh, your show really has been a bright point of my week for over a year now, which is hard to believe. And uh, it's been a great shame that I haven't been able to donate yet. But, you know, hopefully things will be changing and I uh, should be able to do that soon. So thanks again for everything you do. Hi, Jay. This is Matthew out in California. I'm calling because I've been listening to your very interesting conversation about invisible white privilege. Well, I'm not white. I'm black. And I don't know what that white privilege feels like to experience. But I can tell you what black burden feels like to experience. So here are some things that I go through. I wrote them down on a daily, one thing I went through in one day. And I wanted you to know what black burden actually is. Watching two waitresses fight over which table to seat me at because neither one of them thinks I'm a good tipper because I'm black. Not going with my Caucasian girlfriend to look at apartments because when we go together we will always decline because I'm black. Not walking my dog past banks after hours because if the silent alarm goes off while I'm in the area, I'm a suspect because I'm black. Making sure all of my vehicle paperwork is valid and not in the glove box so when the cops pull me over, I don't have to reach into the glove box because I don't want guns in my face because I'm black. Making sure I don't raise my voice and call everyone sir or ma'am to not be seen as a threat because I'm black. Not carrying bills over $10 because no one will ever accept them because I'm black. Hearing the sounds of doors locking as I walk through the parking lots or intersections of streets as I pass near cars because I'm black. When going to bars, I make sure I always, always approach the bar where a spot where the previous customer hasn't left their tip because if I do, the bartender always thinks I'm trying to steal his tip because I'm black. These are just a few things I go through on a daily basis because I'm black. So, Jay, thank you for the show. I just wanted to share that experience with you. Have a wonderful day. Hello, Jay. This is uh, Larry in Fort Worth, Texas, just calling you to tell you that I have listened to Ryan James Yesick's I Want to Know again and again from the show on April 10th. I can't get it out of my head. Um, 
I'm not gay, but I have a gay son. This speaks more than I think anything that I've ever heard to the issues that are facing gay, lesbian, transgendered people in this country. And I wish that everyone who objects to their lifestyle or objects to who they are or feels that they are sinners could listen to this again and again until finally the hate is burned away. Thanks, Jay. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And thanks also to uh, Lauren, who made her first official appearance, uh, giving us an uh, activism update, looking forward to the uh, Scott Walker recall in Wisconsin and what everyone can do to uh, to be involved with that. Of course, uh, she gave details in her comments today, and all you know, links to all of that will be in the show notes on the blog. Uh, as as will be the case with every episode she appears in. So again today, as we are in the thick of it in terms of uh, fundraising for this new, really, you know, what I think is a groundbreaking uh, project, Our Blue Media, that I've been describing over the last few shows, uh, we're, we're looking to create a fundraising platform for progressive media in a way that will blow PayPal out of the water in, in terms of, you know, any reasonable progressive media outlet who wants to take donations will obviously want to use Blue Media. It's a win-win for uh, producers and supporters alike. It's uh, it's really going to be fantastic. We are in fundraising mode right now. We uh, are offering public thanks. Basically, uh, we're, we're going to have a, a, a site on you know a page on the site that actually lists all the people who helped found it with their donations because you know our philosophy behind it is, is very much progressives and everyone does better when you work together so we're we're working together to build this site uh, with the help the financial help of uh, supporters like you guys so we're raising $15,000 we're at this moment just about to uh, to to go past 9,000 so we're doing really well we have till the till the end of the month to to raise the money and and today I, w- I want to shift focus just from you know asking for donations, which are obviously welcome, but to shift focus to ask you to help promote the idea. This is something it obviously does not cost you any money. Uh, go to ourbluemedia.com. That takes you to the fundraising page, and whether you choose to donate or not, if you think it's a good idea and you want to support it, you can uh, send it out on Facebook and Twitter. There are buttons integrated right there. When you use those tools right on the page, that actually helps promote the site internally on the fundraising site when when there's lots of activity, uh, not just uh, donations, but also Facebook posts and tweets and those sorts of things that indicates to the to the system that to raise our profile on the fundraising site, which helps, of course, uh, for for new people to find the project. And, and, And so beyond that, besides encouraging your connections through social media or by or by email to get involved with the fundraiser. Uh, you can also get in touch with any media outlets that you think would be interested in in being involved. And if you have not heard either myself or David Backman interviewed about our blue media, encourage them to interview us because you know we we know a few people and we can we can get in on a few shows. I've been trying to do the rounds, um, but but if you've been listening to a show and you haven't heard me interviewed, then. Send, send them a message saying, hey, like I'm a fan of your show and I think you're going to benefit from this thing that's happening. 
interview Jay or David and, uh, and get informed about what's going on and help inform your listeners. So any emails you can send along those lines will uh, be enormously helpful to uh, encourage them to interview us and spread the word of the project. Just another way that the project gains more and more strength the more people get involved and, and we work together. So thanks in advance for anyone who helped spread the word uh, that way. And of course, thanks in uh, retrospect to everyone who has already donated. And then thanks also in advance to anyone who hasn't donated yet, but will. And I think that covers everyone. And if you don't plan to donate or spread the word in any way, then I don't thank you for anything. Well, except for listening. Thanks for listening. So that's it for today. Of course, besides supporting Our Blue Media, you can support this show in particular. Uh, we're still taking membership subscriptions and donations and in the old-fashioned way. That is uh, obviously how this show survives. So thanks to all of the members and donors who help keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you. Please uh, please keep those uh, donations coming in. In the meantime, uh, before before Blue Media launches, that's uh, honestly, that's sort of the thing I didn't really think of. Like, oh, man, uh, donations might drop off a cliff and we're all going to be in trouble when we start talking about it. So, uh, so please don't let that prediction be true. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out in the open